Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. What comes next in the book of Isaiah launches some of the richest, most beautiful, and somewhat complicated text in all the owner's manual. For if you've not heard of any of Isaiah's text referred to thus far, chances are you've heard the next snippet. We give Ahaz what might be considered another countdown, a human timer of sorts, to the coming judgment upon his adversaries. We tell him that a child is about to be conceived by a young woman, and that by the time the boy is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Isaiah 7.16 The child will be named Immanuel. El being me, the rest meaning with us, God with us. Which lights up all kinds of pathways for a good number of you, and rightly so. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let us take a moment to savor this one. First, you've got to remember that all the associations which 21st century habitats have piled onto these few words haven't been formed yet for Ahaz. So hold on to your habitat, people. Ahaz is hearing these words in the context of immediate military and political threat, and as a promise that his enemies will be defeated by none other than the king of Assyria whose power is likened to a river that will overflow its banks and sweep on into Judah and will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Isaiah 8, 7 and 8. So Emmanuel, Emmanuel, as most of you have learned to say it, is in the very least a king of Judah, and in the immediate political context will be seen to be the son of Ahaz, Hezekiah. One of Emmanuel's traits is an uncanny sense of right and wrong, gained at an early age, by the time he's eating curds and honey, not to mention meat and potatoes. Spoiler alert! Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is going to have right and wrong in spades, though not necessarily good judgment all the time. The point we are making to Ahaz at that time is that his time is short, and he needs to turn to us. For Assyria is not only the most dangerous military force in his region at the time, they are also our instrument against the north. That's right, our instrument. In bringing consequence upon Israel, Isaiah pleads with Ahaz not to catch Judah up in conspiracies, not to worry about political enemies. The prophet has another son whose coming is also foretold, at least to Isaiah, this time naming him the pithy Maher Shalal Hashbaz, meaning the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. 
as a warning that the coming Assyrian wave that will wipe out Damascus and Samaria will also sweep down into Judah if I am not trusted in. Ahaz's immediate need is not to fear his military enemies, but instead to worry about being right with me. Yahweh of hosts is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Isaiah 8. Chuck the neighbors and their gods and make sure you're right with me. I will handle the rest. Sadly and predictably, Ahaz does not fear me enough to place his trust in me. He fears the human kings allied against him more, and resorts to human assistance rather than ante up the faith in us that will trigger our covenantal protection. Failing to recognize the danger in inviting a bear into the house to chase away the squirrels that got in, Ahaz turns to Assyria for help against his foes. This step is patently unnecessary because I've already told Ahaz through Isaiah that I'm going to be using Assyria to do the very thing for which Ahaz is selling himself. We will refrain from a lengthy excursion into applying this lesson to your life, but do note that if you snatch something for yourself rather than trusting in us to provide it for you, especially when we've made a promise to that effect, you are walking in the steps of Ahaz. Do us all a favor and just don't go there, friend. And so Ahaz sends silver and gold from my temple stores, as well as some of his own. 2 Kings 16.7, 2 Chronicles 28.16 Send silver and gold to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, with an appeal for rescue from Syria and Israel, a request that, again, needn't have been made, but is nonetheless seen as causal in Ahaz's eyes, when Assyria soon captures Damascus, capital of Aram. We had already made sure Tiglath-Pileser was going to do that. This alliance on Ahaz's part is totally unnecessary, yet another testimony to self-trust instead of faith in me. You're getting and applying this point, right? And though it seems to have had the same results I had promised through Isaiah, the consequences from this needless pact will ripple into the future in ways far more negative than the timeline that would have resulted from trust in me. While I will go ahead and use those future consequences as well, don't you know, Ahaz has still blown it. As if further proof is needed of this, Ahaz digs himself into a bigger hole swiftly on the heels of Assyria's victory over Damascus, traveling there to Damascus himself to meet Tiglath-Pileser, who's come to gloat in victory over his enemy. So enamored has the king of Judah become with the success of Assyria, that he not only adopts their gods as his, thinking they're working better than I am, Second Chronicles 28.22. But he also has one of the lead Jerusalem priests, Uriah, who also had some interaction with Isaiah. Isaiah 8.2 for that. 
He has Uriah erect an altar in my temple that matches the one used in Damascus in the worship of their gods. You don't need me to tell you how excited I am about this and the other renovations Ahaz makes to my house as a result of his visit to Damascus. One such renovation is his removal of the king's personal entrance to the temple, a sorry symbol that he has subjugated his rule not to me, but to Tiglath-Pileser in 2 Kings 16.10. These renovations are practically redundant anyhow, since he also closes the doors to our temple and sets up altars to other gods at every street corner in Jerusalem and in every town left to Judah. Second Chronicles 28-24 One cannot imagine a more complete rebellion against me. Isaiah has said all he can to Ahaz. The prophet's whole purpose, even that of his entire family, is to point to me, down to their very names. Since no one in Judah seems to be listening to him at this point, Isaiah warns them they'd better not make matters worse by turning even further to the dark side, by dabbling in necromancy to seek guidance from the dead. Isaiah 8 and 18 for the narrative, Leviticus 20:27 20, for my laws against it. Also Leviticus 19:31 and 20, verse 6. Surely you remember how stirring up the dead turned out for Saul, back in 1 Samuel 28. While Ahaz is living out the choices he's made down in Judah, their consequences are moving in the politics of the area and my purposes are all ripening in spite of it all at the same time. There's a final changing of the guard up in Israel. Pekah's strategy of allying with Syria against Assyria is not working. In fact, in the course of Pekah's reign, Tiglath-Pileser III has Israel in a widening grip and takes for himself the northern section of Israel that had once been allotted to Naphtali including the region of Galilee, as well as the tract of Gilead east of the Jordan River. TP3 deports those conquered back to Assyria, 2 Kings 15.29. As you can imagine, there are plenty in Israel, or what remains of it, that think the only way to keep Assyria from totally wiping out the northern kingdom is to switch to an alliance with them just as Ahaz has done in Judah, in the hope of preventing further full-on conquest by the stronger bully. Thus, Pekah loses the leftover throne of Israel in the same way he took it. An ambitious fellow who doesn't like Pekah's politics kills the king and takes the crown. 2 Kings 15.30 In yet another unfortunate naming resemblance, Hoshea is the man who replaces Pekah as king not to be confused, though easily so, with Hosea, the promiscuous wife-marrying prophet who is active yet in the north at the start of Hosea's reign. Imagine the handful of dinner conversations at the time that included them both. Israel still has the chance to reverse course with us until practically the nearing final moment. Hosea begins his reign, which you're advised by King's writer, is going to last a total of nine years, 2 Kings 17. 
Hosea begins his reign by ending Israel's resistance to Assyria, pledging them his allegiance and paying them a heavy tribute to keep them at bay. In fact, TP3 takes credit for this in his memoirs, in his Kalah Palace Summary Inscription 4. TP3 claims he's the one who puts Hosea on Israel's throne and exacts enormous amounts of silver and gold to allow his puppet to stay in place. And so there is a delicate peace for the brief remainder of TP3's reign. When his son Shalmaneser V succeeds him to rule Assyria, Hosea is either out of gold, common sense, or both, as he stops payment to the bully and reaches out to Egypt for help? Yes, you heard right. In case you're wondering how we feel about this, Isaiah poetically conveys this in Isaiah 30, 1-7. Similar words are sounded in the north within King Hosea's hearing by prophet Hosea in Hosea 12. Hosea, Hosea, Hosea. If only you would have listened to your kindred sound-alike prophet's final pleas and turned and placed your trust in me instead. On the heels of predicting a final and brutal destruction of Samaria at the end of Hosea 13, the last chapter of the prophet scroll is one last plea for Israel to return to me and be forgiven. An amazing offer given all that's gone before. Yet, still an ignored offer. If only Hosea had turned and placed his trust in me instead. If only someone in the generations before had turned and placed their trust in me instead. No, you have all acted as if I do not even exist, walking in the steps of generations before you. And I am thus required by our covenant with the people of Israel to finally, fully enact the consequences that are contractually required of us. And so, when Shalmaneser V fails to receive the next scheduled tribute payment, it takes only a light investigation to reveal Hosea's treachery. The Assyrian king captures Hosea and imprisons him, foreseen by Hosea in 13, 9-11. Whatever land is yet free in Israel is consumed by Assyria as they move to surround Israel's last city, the capital Samaria, chosen way back in 1 Kings 16.23 by general-turned-king Omri because of its high geography and defensibility. Assyria lays siege to Samaria, a siege which lasts three full years. The walled city is so well defended and supplied as Omri had discerned. I take no delight in the details that shall follow, and because of the grave nature of it all, will save the rest for next time.